Please remain standing and turn with me to Luke 15. We'll read verses 1 through 7. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Amen. Let's go back to Jonah now. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. And we're going to read Jonah 4, conclusion of this prophetic history. I'll start for context back at the last verse of the previous chapter. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, 
in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Amen. You may be seated. In the parable of the prodigal son, everybody remembers the young man who runs away with his father's money, wastes it all in reckless living. Everybody remembers him making a wreck of his life and coming to the end of himself in a far country and resolving to come back to his father's house. And everybody remembers his father seeing him approaching from far away, and he runs to meet him and embraces him, welcomes him home in spite of everything. And at that point, it seems like the story arc is done. That would be a great place to end and just saying they all live happily ever after. Uh, But of course, that's not how Jesus ends that parable. Uh, One of the points of parables, the way they're designed, is um, to, to catch us off guard. Uh, to kind of throw us off balance. That's what a parable does. It challenges our assumptions. It shows us our blind spots, kind of a a provocative way that catches us just when we get comfortable. The parable of the prodigal son doesn't stop with that moment of reconciliation. It, It actually ends. The conclusion, really the impact of that parable, comes most strongly uh, with what it says about the older brother. Father, look, these many years I've served you, he says. I've never disobeyed your command. What are you, why are you doing all of this for him? And the father answers, son, you're, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. But your brother was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost and is found. Uh, one writer named Joyce Baldwin uh, points out very helpfully that the book of Jonah is... And its themes are, in some ways, very much like the parable of the prodigal son. Um, Except, with this significant twist, that in this book, the prophet Jonah plays the part, really, of both sons. First, the prodigal in chapters 1 and 2. And then here in chapter 4, he's acting like who? He's acting like the older brother. It's all the more absurd because of the way his story begins. He first experiences that amazing grace of God in his own life. But then he's resentful when he sees that very same amazing grace being extended in a different direction. It offends him. And so like that parable, uh, the book of Jonah also does not have that happily ever after ending that we might have been looking for. Instead, it, too, uh, challenges us, catches us off guard, throws us off balance. And it really invites us to see in Jonah uh, our own self-righteousness, our own way we fall short in compassion. It shows us the, the contradictions that we can sometimes hold in our own thinking about God. And his grace. So let's look at this final chapter in three parts. 
First is going to be a graceless complaint, verses 1 through 4. Second, an undeserved comfort, verses 5 through 9. And then third, a sovereign compassion, verses 10 and 11. So a graceless complaint, an undeserved comfort, and a sovereign compassion. So a minute ago we read in Luke uh, about the, the joyful celebration there is in heaven when just one sinner um, repents, turns to God. So if that's what Jesus describes for when one sinner repents, you can imagine maybe the even greater heavenly celebration when this whole city of Nineveh, thousands upon thousands, together humble themselves before God in response to the preaching of God's prophet. Um, that highlights, then, the great contrast there is between that, that heavenly celebration, we might imagine, on the one hand, and the response of God's prophet. On the other, when it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, anger, you can think about that for a minute. Anger is um, a God-given human emotion. It's a really important one, in fact. It's part of being in the image of God. Um, It's the way that we are designed to respond to things that are unjust and wrong. God gave us anger to motivate us, to confront and to correct evil, to protect the innocent and vulnerable uh, from harm. That's what it's there for. It's designed to be kind of a creaturely reflection of the just and holy wrath of God. The problem, of course, is that like all of our thoughts and choices and emotions, uh, this one also has been corrupted and is very often co-opted very powerfully by our sin. Um, So what happens for us sinners is that our anger responses, it's like they're calibrated all wrong. Somebody's messed with the dials. Um, And so we either feel angry when a different feeling would be more fitting. Or we feel uh, more angry or sometimes less angry than the situation calls for. Or we uh, feel only anger when that anger ought to be uh, tempered, maybe complemented by some other uh, righteous feelings. We find ourselves getting angry at the wrong times, at the wrong things, to the wrong degree. And then to make matters worse... Um, we frequently express that anger in sinful choices, sinful words. And so rather than channeling that anger to energize us, to correct and prevent evil the way that God designed that emotion to work, anger is often, uh, in fact, one of the most powerful ways that we inflict evil on other people. Now, Jonah's anger here um, is an example of of that emotion being directed in exactly the opposite uh, way from how God intended it. So like I said earlier, we're designed to respond with anger when we sense injustice. But if our injustice sensors are faulty, then that anger response will kick in when it's not supposed to. That's why we need to train our sense of justice 
according to God's word. A lot of people will say, well, I can't control my feelings. And, and it's true, we can't control our feelings directly, but our feelings are informed by our thoughts and by our repeated choices. And so indirectly, in the broader scope of a mature Christian life, you can control your emotions. At least you can help them to be shaped, to be submitted more to the will of God by listening, by believing the truth. And this is um, where Jonah goes wrong. He has not trained his sense of justice according to God's character, according to what he ought to know about the way that God acts in the world and interacts with sinners. The fact is that Jonah was really looking forward to the overthrow of Nineveh. That's what he wanted to see happen. He was not hoping for the city to repent and be spared. And so when the outcome runs counter to his expectations, he lashes out, Lord, this is not, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. And this is really, if you think about it, it's kind of horrifying what Jonah is saying here because he is really going back and doubling down on the attitude that he had at the very beginning of the book. The one that brought on him that severe discipline of God when he first disobeyed God's command to go to Nineveh. And after everything Jonah has been through, he still has not learned his lesson. After all of that grace that God has shown to him, he's going back and he's reasserting that position that led to him getting thrown into the sea and swallowed by the great fish. And if that doesn't seem absurd enough already, you can go on and see how he tries to, to justify himself by complaining, really, against some of the most precious aspects of the character of God. For I knew, he said, and you can imagine, maybe not literally, but in his heart, that wagging finger, I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew that's what you were like. Um, that, by the way, is, is actually a classic statement of the character of God uh, that first appears in Exodus 34. It's repeated various times throughout the Old Testament, including a few times in the Psalms, that God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in, um, well, the Hebrew word is chesed, that, that steadfast loyalty that I pointed out to you many times in different context. And that is indeed the kind of God God is. Um, so in that sense, Jonah does know the truth about God to a degree. What's more, he's experienced that in his own life. But here's where jo Jonah goes wrong. He, he, what Jonah wants to do is he wants to limit that grace and mercy of God uh, by keeping it for himself while denying it to others. Uh, he is so kind of twisted by his self selfishness and self-righteousness that his perspective is on, on the world is, is askew. He's not seeing things clearly. When he sees this gracious character of God toward Nineveh displayed, not only does he not celebrate it like the angels in heaven would do, it makes him angry, so angry that he wants to die. He's basically saying, if this is the way the world is, if this is what God is like, I don't want any part of it. Um, and so you can see, again, that's an attitude very much like in chapter 1. He is wanting to flee from the presence of the Lord, this time through death, instead of just a mere 
voyage across the sea. Now, there are any number of ways that we might uh, write the next line in the story. If we were guessing what the Lord would do next, how he might respond to this prayer of Jonah, Um, maybe, you know, Jonah being struck down by a bolt of lightning or something like that. Uh, But, of course, we can't forget what, what Jonah already knows and what he's actually just said about the character of God, which was, in fact, true, that the Lord is indeed a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster, even the disaster that we, his servants, deserve in our own selfishness and self-righteousness. And so instead of any of those potential responses of condemnation, it's uh, very interesting the way the Lord meets Jonah here with this provocative rhetorical question. He asks him, do you do well to be angry? Just as a practical note, what a great, what a great question to ask ourselves. Kind of in that moment when you feel the muscles in your neck tightening and the veins just popping out a little bit, and you, you can feel your jaw start to kind of grind and your fists are clenching and your feet are starting to stomp and your doors are starting to slam. What a gift this question is. If we will use it to stop us in our tracks and, and to help us, hopefully, to think before we speak and act out of that emotion in uh, maybe sinful and harmful ways. Do you do well to be angry? You can ask yourself that question. The Lord is asking you that question in his word. You can ask, is this anger really being driven by properly calibrated instincts? Are the dials set by the truth of God's word? Is my justice sensor really properly adjusted to God's character in this moment? And we have to be careful. Uh, We can easily be self-deceived about this. Uh, Usually, when we feel angry, our first answer to all those questions will be, yes, of course I'm right to be angry. Because that's just the way anger works. That's, that's largely what anger is. It's a feeling of being right over against something wrong. Um, and so Jonah's example here should remind us to uh, doubt our first answer to the question, to hold suspect um, that first instinct, to think that we're, of course I'm right to be angry. As Jonah says later on, yes, I do well to be angry. Um, when clear the, an- the answer is no, he feels that the answer is yes. Now, notice as we go on to the second section how uh, the Lord does not merely tell Jonah he's wrong. He doesn't merely rebuke him. The Lord is interested to show Jonah and through Jonah to show us why he's wrong, how it is that he's wrong, to be angry. So it says, Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. Um, He's apparently still hoping that maybe God will destroy the city after all. And he wants to be there to see it happen. And so what what the Lord does next is Jonah's out there in the hot sun. He's exposed to the elements except for the shelter that he's made for himself. Um, But the Lord provides something even better. The Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. 
So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Of course, no sooner does God give him this plant, but he takes it away again. A worm attacks it, withers. Um, Notice again, uh, as one writer really emphasizes here, how God is, is yet again working through the natural world in a supernatural way. He's working through the natural world in a supernatural way. So first it was the sea and the wind and the waves. Now it's the great fish. Uh, then, then it was the great fish. Um, now it's the plant followed by the worm. Uh, just as he used the wind to, uh, to whip up the storm, now he is using this hot east wind and the beating sun to make Jonah uh, so miserable with this uh, reversal of circumstances that once again... He gets angry. It's better for me to die than to live, he feels. And so in response, God comes right back to him with that same rhetorical question that he used before. Jonah, do you do well to be angry this time for the plant? I've called this second point an undeserved comfort. And that, I think, is is really important for understanding Uh, the impact that this whole situation uh, is supposed to have on Jonah, what the Lord's pointing out to him. Jonah is angry when the shade plant is taken away. But the question that arises is, what had Jonah done to deserve that plant in the first place, that convenience, that shelter? Um, Before he had the plant, he didn't, it's not like he missed it. It's not like he was angry I'm just so angry at God that he won't make a plant grow up, specially for me, and cover my head. That would be, I think even Jonah would realize how absurd that would be, to to be angry that God hadn't done a miracle to give him shade in the middle of the desert. So why is it then that once the plant is gone, once the Lord has given it and then taken it away, Jonah is now angry, even though he's just back to where things were at the beginning? you could really think of Jonah's response as exactly the opposite, like exactly the opposite of the response of Job when the Lord permits his um, family and his wealth to be taken away. And remember what he says, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, for Jonah, as soon as he got that taste of this good gift of God, it's surprising how, how fast, how instantly he developed this entitlement mentality about that gift of God. Right away, he started to feel like he deserved it and to feel that God is not good anymore if he does not let me keep it. Frankly, this is practically the way that we think often when we are feeling irritated, resentful, frustrated. Um, And that's true on small scale with the kind of little inconveniences of daily life. This can play out. It can play out also in the more uh, greatly disruptive griefs and losses that we face at various times. How slow we are to um, carry out that attitude of, of those servants and Jesus' parable in Luke 17. Remember, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say this, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. 
Even, the point of that parable is that even when we're at our very best, even at our very best, when we've done everything right, God owes us nothing. He owes us nothing except, of course, for what he owes to himself because of his promises to us. But how quick we are instead to have that entitlement mentality that Jonah shows here. In his answer back to God, Jonah shows that he, he just has not gotten the point, at least not yet. Um, again, he doubles down. He says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Um, and that is the answer of a heart that is feeling like life really revolves around me. A self-centered, self-consumed life. I referenced uh, Joyce Baldwin earlier. Uh, she also makes a very helpful point about verse 10 here as we get into the final conclusion, which is that the Lord is, um, I think we could say, speaking a little bit ironically when he speaks of Jonah pitying the plant. It's not, it's not as though Jonah felt sorry for the plant. On, on the surface, that's the comparison. On the surface, there's this comparison between the plant and Nineveh. You're sad about the destruction of the plant, and you're also sad about the non-destruction of Nineveh. Nineveh not getting destroyed. You pity the plant, but you're upset because I've pitied Nineveh. So that's the kind of surface thing that, that's explicit. But what's unstated, what's below the surface, what's, uh, I think we go so far as to say what's the real rhetorical impact on Jonah that the Lord is trying to get across, is to point out to Jonah that by pitying the plant, quote-unquote, He's really engaging, as Baldwin says, in self-pity. He's having a Jonah pity party about losing his precious shade. But the problem is that he's blind to that sharp dissonance between his self-pity and his pitiless attitude Towards Nineveh. Okay, so it's it's tempting uh, just to keep beating up on Jonah here. Um, of course, in doing that, uh, we may end up actually kind of repeating Jonah's mistake ourselves, unwilling um, to show the kind of understanding and compassion towards Jonah that maybe we would have liked to receive if we were in his shoes here. But besides that, I think we'll also miss the, the very most important point here And uh, if we focus only on Jonah and forget that the main character of this book, as all of the books of the Bible, is not Jonah, it's not the Ninevites, it is, of course, the Lord. The Lord is always the main character of every book of the Bible. It can really help us to understand what's the point of any given passage And what we really want to see, then, in this conclusion is not just Jonah's shortcomings. We can pick on Jonah all day long, and we can see him and and see ourselves in Jonah like a mirror. But we won't have gotten the point of the book of Jonah if we don't take away from it this last point that I've labeled the Lord's sovereign compassion. The Lord's sovereign compassion. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, and should I not pity Nineveh? So what we're being confronted with here at the end is the broad and deep 
and high scope of the compassion, the mercy of our and Jonah's almighty God and heavenly Father. A God who is so much more generous and kind towards sinners than uh, you and I typically are. Uh, you know, people get offended often by the Bible's teaching about the wrath of God, um, especially what they'll describe as supposedly the God of the Old Testament. Um, and yes, the Bible does teach the, ra- the just wrath of God against sin. And in fact, if we don't believe in the wrath of God uh, against sin, um, then his compassion, his grace, his mercy won't really make any sense. They won't have any v- value to us. We won't see them as amazing, uh, just seem routine. Um, but the point here is that here at the end of the book of Jonah, we are confronted with um, something unexpected. People who have that attitude are thinking, I'm so nice and kind towards sinners. I'm willing to excuse people's sin, unlike that wrathful God of the Old Testament. What Jonah is teaching us, what this book of Jonah is teaching us, is that God's compassion towards sinners is actually far and away greater than ours. His long-suffering, his patience, his willingness to forgive, set next to ours, it's like an elephant next to an ant. Oh, love, how deep, how broad, how high, how passing thought and fantasy that God, the Son of God, should take our mortal form, for mortal's sake. For us, by wicked men betrayed, for us, in crown of thorns arrayed, he bore the shameful cross and death. For us, he gave his dying breath. And for us, he rose from death again. For us, he went on high to reign. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate expression the ultimate expression of the sovereign compassion of God towards sinners, sinners like Jonah, like the Ninevites, like us here at Resurrection. You remember the day when the Lord Jesus looked out on the crowds who had come to see him, and his heart was moved with compassion. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So we have to ask ourselves, why is it then that our hearts are so often just dull and calloused at the plight of the lost apart from Christ? And not only dull and calloused, why are our hearts so often so angry? So much more like that unforgiving servant who took his fellow servant by the throat and said, pay me what you owe, even though he had just been forgiven a much greater debt to his master. The the book of Jonah, I hope, leaves us feeling uneasy. Um, It doesn't give us Jonah's answer. Sometimes you might feel like, wait, is is it actually done? (laughs) What's on the next page? Uh, I don't think it's a mistake. I know it's not a mistake. Um, it intentionally doesn't show us Jonah changing his mind. It doesn't show us Jonah getting the answer right at the end. 
it's, it's a lot like, again, that prodigal son story that leaves us with the bitter taste of the older brother's resentment still kind of lingering in our mouths with nothing to wash it down except for that final reminder of the Father's mercy. Just as we get this final reminder of the Lord's pity, his compassion towards Nineveh. Both that parable and this prophetic history invite us in, invite us in to ask ourselves how our our hearts are being formed more by the anger of Jonah, the older brother, than by that sovereign compassion of our Heavenly Father. They both invite us to ask ourselves, provoke us to ask ourselves, do you do well to be angry? Do you? Really? In light of the Word of God and the character of God. And they both teach us to seek diligently to have our instincts, to have our, our justice meter, all those dials of our hearts recalibrated and adjusted according to the word and character of God as we take in, as we behold and experience the length and breadth and height and depth of the love and grace of God that has saved wretches like us and brought us and kept us contrary to everything we deserve in the family of God. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for Jonah, Jonah in all of his weakness. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for our unjust, unrighteous, ungodly anger, our selfishness and self-righteousness. Lord, we ask that you would train us, transform us, recalibrate us shape us more and more in the image of Christ to share the heart of Christ towards sinners, that compassion that moves towards the lost and grace seeks and saves them. We thank you for uh, the amazing grace that you have shown to sinners like us. And we ask that you would please equip us and motivate us Um, to share that grace rather than withholding it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.